I don't know about you, but I think there's a lot of weird and strange things going on on this old dusty planet. I mean, there are things that make us... You're, if you watch the news, if you're just listening to anything, there are things that are happening that are just going to make you cringe. Some of the laws that are being brought into different states just make you cringe. There's, there's other things that are going on that make you just weep. There are things that make you angry. Uh, and, and the big question that we want to ask is kind of like, what in the world's going on and who's in charge of this mess? Because it does, it seems like it's just... Uh, you know, um, I saw a thing this morning um, that said, aren't you glad that you were a kid before technology? That's me. My technology was a Stingray bicycle that I'd crash on a daily basis. And, and, and yet, when we take a look at what's going on around us, it, it is disturbing. It's, it's, it hurts your soul. People don't know what to do with it. I mean, the amount of things that are happening, the way things are going, it's depressing. And some people are even asking the question, why do we even carry on with this stuff? Why do we even have to deal with this stuff? Isn't it better just to kind of give up rather than to press on? Isn't things so dark that we should probably just all forget it and hang it up and, and forget what's, what's happening and what's going on? And, and I'm going to tell you, I want... I don't know if this is going to be surprising to you. We're not the first ones to think of that. We're not the first ones to struggle through that. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthian church, here's what he said to them. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the afflictions we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Did you know that the Apostle Paul was at the point where he's going like, what's the use? Why even try anymore? Do we struggle through this thing? I mean, like he's totally going like, this is mind-blowing. I can't, I can't even bear under the weight of it. And so the question that maybe we need to ask ourselves is, is what's the church supposed to do? How is this church, this church, or the greater church, supposed to make an impact on our community. Because after all, isn't that what Jesus wants us to do? Doesn't Jesus want us to, to bring some kind of a moral standard for other people to follow? Doesn't he want us to give people spiritual direction so that they have a way to go? Isn't God, doesn't God want us to step out and to proclaim the goodness of Jesus to those around us? Isn't that what the church's job is supposed to do? And, and after all, what are we doing as a church? Because when you take a look at what's happening in this world, there's all kinds of varying views from everything from politics to marriage, from the environment to conceiving and carrying a baby to full term and bringing that little kid into this world. Matter of fact, people are dealing with all kinds of horrible disease and illnesses all the time, and we kind of wonder what's God got going on in all of this because there are times when what we do is we can't even get out of bed. And what we do is we end up just weeping, crying ourselves to sleep, or crying when we wake up. And again, we're not the first to deal with this stuff. We do think we are. We're, we're, think, we're the ones that are going like, man, the world's never been so bad. Well, the psalmist wrote Psalm 42, and here's what he said. My tears have been my food day and night. He's so distraught that that's what he's, he's having for breakfast. Tears. And while they, this is the people that are mocking him, uh, while they say to me all along, all day long, where is your God? That's the question, right? I mean, when bad things are happening, when life is going sideways for us, when things aren't working out the way we wanted them to, when you get that diagnosis of some disease that you didn't expect to have happen, when you look at your grandchild suffering greater, in greater ways than you could ever imagine, when things in your marriage and relationships are falling apart, when you look at your finances and find out you have way more months than money left, you wonder what's going on and where is God in all of this stuff. And, and it, it kind of makes us wonder what we're supposed to do as a church. Where are we supposed to go? How are we supposed to function 
in a way that really makes a difference or an impact on our community, on our world. But before we can figure out what we as a church are doing, we need to know what God's doing. Because if we try and go ahead and just do whatever we want to do, Wind River Community Church, if Wind River Community Church just says, hey, we're just going to go out and we're just going to do a bunch of stuff and we don't have a clue what it is that God's doing, I'm telling you, next Sunday, just everybody sleep in and stay home. I'm saying that because I'm not going to be here. Lorinda and I are going to be in Florida for a conference, Suffering for Jesus in Orlando. I'm just telling you. Pray for us. If you go back to Psalm 42, the psalmist starts to preach to himself. It's amazing how, you know, we start off with, woe is me, and then all of a sudden we have this moment where God shines in, into our lives, and we're like, wait a minute, there's got to be more. And so here's how he preaches to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Here it is. Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Look, that's the whole thing, right? I mean, when you're, when you're walking in despair, when things are dark, when things are hard, when things are not turning out the way you want to, you can take a look and you can become a, a navel gazer and just think that the world is, is falling in on itself, that there's no hope, there's no use, Things are dark. Where's God in the darkness? That's what you can think. But if you pull your head up and you take a look around, you're going to go like, oh, my hope can be in God. And so really the question that I want to answer this morning is, what is God doing? If our hope's in God, what is God doing? And I want to make it more simple than that because there's a whole bunch of different things we could talk about. I mean, this is a broad subject when you ask, what is God doing? And I I don't want to get into what's God governing over, what is He sovereign over. That's not the question that I want to answer this morning. The question I want to answer is simply this. What is the mission of God? What is the mission of God? What's the point to all of this? So if you look at creation, it seems like You know, it's a bit excessive when you look at what Jesus did in creation. If you begin to look at the universe, I mean, they've been using this magnificent telescope and stuff and satellites and everything else and and all kinds of stuff out in space to look way out there and they still can't find the end of the universe. It's just this immense, immense thing that's going on out there. And so we can't find it. And so it just seems to be a little bit over the top. And if our God is our cre- uh, uh, the creator who creates everything, that is, he's involved where the stars, he tells the stars where to go and where to stay. If he does that, and if he's involved in the uh, cellular structure of who you are, I'm not talking about your cell phone, I'm talking about your body, then what's he doing? What's his mission? What's he about? What's he trying to accomplish? And I think if if you ask people this, most evangelicals will answer this question wrongly. They will answer it wrongly by using the Bible. So let me expose some of the things that they answer it wrongly with just for a little bit. I think people look at the world and themselves through our cultural lenses. They assume that God's mission is about us. The reason everything exists is so that God might save me, might rescue me, and might ultimately have children like we have children, where we want to see them mature and safe and and well put together. That's kind of like mission for God. And they'll point to the fact that God created this. They will point to all the verses in the Bible where God loves us, He provides for us, He cares for us, He's our shield and protector. They'll point to that and see, and say, see, it's obvious. We're the point of all of this. We're what God is after. Now, God is for you. That is true. Hear what I'm saying. God loves you. He does provide for you. He is a shield about you and the lifter of your head. But there is a motivation behind all that lifting all that protecting, all that guiding, all that loving, and it goes well beyond you. And so this morning what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you to one of the most famous passages of Scripture 
in the Bible. And if you're not a church person or you haven't grown up in the church, I'm sure you'll even recognize this. You don't have to be a real churchy guy or gal to recognize this. And it comes from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Let's just stop right there, because when you stop right there, guess what you can do? At that point, now you can point to all the things that say that this is all about us, because here's what God is doing. He is leading us. He is loving us. He is taking us to unhurried places. He is shepherding us. He is restoring us. He's providing for us. He's laying us beside streams streams of still water. And you can see God's activity towards all of us. It looks like we're the point. And you can do this with a hundred texts within the Bible. And you can, but the one thing you'll miss if you stop right there is the root of all of his motivation. What's the motivation for him leading and lying in green pastures and leading us to still waters and restoring our soul? The text will tell us because it's very clear what the motivation is for this. So let's go back to that third verse of the 23rd Psalm. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Now get this. This is the point for his name's sake. So why does God love you? Why does God pursue you? Why does God shepherd you? Why does God care for you? It's not because of you. It's for the sake of His name. We miss that. We don't think about that. Now there's this this thing that we want to do. We, We want to praise God for His glorious grace. That's what we're called to do. You know, there's this class if you go to university, and a lot of universities, they offer this class. It's called Perspectives on World Religion. And near the end of it, what they'll do is they'll unpack what they call the dog and cat theology. And and so what the dog and cat theology is, it sounds something like this, because if you have a cat, here's what your cat says. Your cat says, you feed me, you care for me, you look after me, you give me everything I need, I must be God. Whereas if you have a dog, the dog thinks, my owner feeds me, cares for me, cleans up after me, scratches me, loves me, he must be God. Now, that's, that's why when you come home, your dog is like, I can't believe you came back for me. And he's so happy to see you. Whereas when you walk in the, the door and you have a cat, your cat goes, really? You're back? Scratch. And you're like, what? Now, far too many evangelicals are feline in their theology. What I mean by that is that they're saying, well, God loves me, and he's for me, and so I must be the point of all of this. Here's the problem when you're the point of everything. Everything falls apart. Now, I know some of you are thinking, you know what, Pastor Ken, that's really great that you can pull that out of those first three verses of the 23rd Psalm, but if that's all you've got for me, (laughs) you're going to have to do better because that's not enough for me. Well, okay, if that's not enough for you, buckle up, because we're going to go through it real quick. And so I've got like a bunch of verses I'm going to share with you that's going to point to who God is. And and some of you are going to go like, get your pen ready to start writing this stuff. Smoke's going to be coming off the end of it. So don't write it down. See the stack of papers up here? If you want those verses, they're all compiled for you right here. And, And listen, I'm not that smart guy that went like, man, I know all these verses by heart. I actually took them from a guy by the name of John Piper. And so here's what John Piper has um, put together, his compilation. God created us for his glory. Isaiah 43 through 6 through 7, it says, I say to the north, give up. I say to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Now, I want to talk, I want you to think about this. The reason you exist, the reason you are, is for the glory of God, the name and the renown of God, the praising of his infinite 
perfections. That's why you exist. You're here not for fellowship. You, you know, there are people who actually think that the reason God created you is because he got lonely. Well, you know, I, I've, I, I hate to bust your bubble on that, but God wasn't lonely when he created you because there's this thing that's going on with God throughout eternity from time past till time to the other way. I mean, it just keeps going on. And so what you have is you have God the Father, you have Jesus the Son, you have the Holy Spirit, and they all exist together in perfect harmony, in perfect love, in perfect fellowship. Because guess what? God's perfect, and guess what he lacks? Nothing. And so he's always got this love thing going between the Father and the Son, and the, the Son and the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit and the Son, and the Holy Spirit and the Father, and the Father and the Holy Spirit. So you have God, the three in one, the triune, triune God, who loves each other perfectly, who declares everything perfectly, who is in community perfectly. And so he's, they live like this and they've always existed like this. And so when we come together and we've been created, we think that God created us because he needs us. But guess what? I hate to bust your bubble. He doesn't need any of us. Some of you should have said hallelujah. Should have been something there, but that's okay. I understand you're, you're, you're caught up in this whole thing that because of this, we, we need to exist. But here's why you exist. He, he created you for the praise of his glorious grace. That's why you exist. It's the reason you're alive. Another one, Isaiah 49 says, God calls Israel for his glory. In Jeremiah 13, it's Jeremiah, God says to Jeremiah to tell Israel, I didn't pick you guys because you're awesome. I picked you because you're the smallest, clumsiest tribe on planet Earth. So even with Israel, it wasn't about Israel. It was, in fact, it was, it was about God. And even to this day, God delights in making much of himself through, through people who are lacking, people who are clumsy, people who, who just don't, can't get it together. That's who God likes to make himself great through. You know what? You should be very grateful for that. Welcome to the church of clumsy people. Somebody just dropped their water. I heard it. That was perfect timing. I mean, it couldn't be better. Let's carry on. Psalm 106, God rescues Israel from Egypt for his glory. God raised up Pharaoh to show his power and glory in, in Romans 9, 17. And here's what it says. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. You know what? I don't know if you've ever read Romans 9. It's not a real popular passage. It's not the one you go to your kids when they're going, you're going to tuck them in at bed at night and go, let me read you a great little story out of Romans 9. Most people really don't like Romans 9. But here's the thing about Romans 9. It's in the Bible, so we better pay attention to it. We better know what it has to say. So if you haven't read it, you should probably do that later on today, or you can do it while I'm preaching if you're bored. Um, but we, the whole thing behind Romans 9 is that God allowed Pharaoh in the pinnacle of human power to exist. Pharaoh pretty much was the, the leader of the world in his time in history. And God put him in that place. He had a slave force of millions. He had a massive empire and massive army. And the Bible tells us that God gave him all of that so that he could crush him to show that man at his pinnacle of power is tiny compared to God on his worst day. If God can have a bad day, that is. So, we see the destruction of Pharaoh, that it was about the name of God. Again, in Psalm 106, God defeats Pharaoh by the Red Sea to show his glory. God spared Israel in the wilderness for the glory of his name, Ezekiel 20. And by the way, I don't know if you've ever read through the Old Testament, but it seems like every time, I'm just amazed at God's gracious, loving, compassion 
and, and long-suffering for Israel. Because here's what happens is, is Israel is given a command by God. God says, thou shalt not do this. This is what you're supposed to do. And they go, okay. And then they do exactly the opposite of what God says. And I'm surprised at every time that God just doesn't bring out the, the brimstone and fire and totally annihilate them. But he doesn't because he's long-suffering and he's gracious and he loves them for the renown of his great name. That's why he does all this stuff. Let's carry on. In, in 2 Samuel, God gave Israel the promised land for the glory of his name. In 1 Samuel, God did not cast away his people for the glory of his name. God saved Jerusalem from attack for the glory of his name in 2 Kings. God restored Israel from the exile for the glory of his name in Ezekiel 36. And now we have Jesus who shows up and fits right into the rhythm and the movement of God's glory. And Jesus sought the glory of the Father in all that he did in John 7. And then Jesus told us to do good work that God would be glorified. And we find that in Matthew 5 and 1 Peter 2. And Jesus warned that the failure to seek God's glory makes faith impossible. And that's found in John 5, 44. And here's what he says. Jesus is saying this. How can you believe? Get that. He's asking kind of a question, rhetorical question. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes through only God? Whose glory are you after? Because that's going to determine what your faith looks like. It's going to determine the strength of your faith. And I want to stop here and push on that a little bit. Because here's what I know about some of you that you might not know about yourselves. And, uh, you know, I'm not reading your mail, and I'm not uh, a prophet. But some of you are here because you believe that with certain actions and certain behaviors, you can put God into your debt. You believe that you can live in such a way that God will owe you something. That when you don't get what you feel like you're owed, then you get frustrated and you get angry that God has not given you what he has not promised to give you. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not, is, is not that everything starts working your way. The good news of the gospel is that God is enough. That God is going to be everything you need in all of the circumstances of life that you find yourself in. You get Jesus, that's the gospel, that's good news. That, and the news is, is that you cannot have saving faith if you're really the one in the center focus of it all. Jesus said he answered prayer so that God would be glorified in John chapter 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Jesus endured his final hours of suffering for the glory of God. John chapter 12, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. God gave his son to vindicate the glory of his righteousness as found in John chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken, these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And he also said in John chapter 13, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If, he, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and that glorify him at once. Now, let me explain this, because there's a little bit of a problem we have with this. The problem is, is that when you take the, the, the man whose heart was most after God, and his name's David, King David, out of the Old Testament, the thing that we know about King David is that he was a murderer and an adulterer. And when he got caught, you know what he said to God? He goes, hey, God, I'm sorry. God's going like, well, okay. There was no blood. And, and here's this whole thing presses out and you've got the thing that's going on and, and so there's no, no blood of Jesus Christ. The death of Jesus hasn't happened yet and, and no righteousness of Christ 
And, and then if you're looking in the New Testament, you begin to see this word called propitiation. We've talked about this a couple of times already. And you will not see that word in any other literature, in any other place on the planet, except for in the Word of God. That's the only place it ever shows up. Matter of fact, we don't use propitiation in our talks when we talk with people through our everyday life. It's not on our, our vocabulary. And propitiation is simply two things I want to bring out to you. First of all, it is God vindicating His righteousness. And the second thing, because Jesus is the wrath bearer. In other words, God's righteousness is vindicated because Jesus took God's wrath on our behalf. He bore the wrath so that we would never have to bear it. He took it so we didn't have to have it. And in that, God's righteousness was vindicated. So Abraham, before Jesus was, had faith that God would make a way for the, their salvation that went beyond the law. It was the same thing for David. The saints of the Old Testament put their faith in God that God would solve this sin problem. They only saw it as a shadow. You and I see it as a fact. But Jesus died on the cross for all sins. I want you to understand this. If, if you take an umbrella and you, it's the umbrella of Jesus, and this is now, right here, this handle, Jesus' umbrella of forgiveness extends to the past. How far back does it go? It goes back to the first sin that was ever created. Adam and Eve, right here. Jesus' sin covers Adam and Eve's sin. Well, how far into the future does it go? It goes far enough into the future until God says to His Son, you need to go down to planet Earth and bring all my kids home. Until the second coming of Christ, Jesus' forgiveness is going to cover your sin. So any sin that you commit in the future is already under the umbrella of Jesus' forgiveness. That's great news. Now, that's not a license either. That doesn't mean you can go like, woohoo, I get to go out and do whatever I want to because Jesus has to forgive me. Well, he will forgive you, but you still have to live with the consequences of bad behavior and um, actually disobedience to God because he tells us not to do that. Um, in Isaiah 43 and Psalm 25, it says God forgives our sin for his own sake. In Romans 15, Jesus receives us into his fellowship for the glory of God. Now, here's one that's really important. I want you to listen to this. Do not miss this next one. The ministry of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to say it again, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Son of God. I want this to sink in. This is big news. Because what's the Holy Spirit doing? When you pray to the Holy Spirit and you give glory to the Holy Spirit, do you know what the Holy Spirit does with that? He takes it and He pours it onto Jesus. Anything you tell the Holy Spirit that is, is praiseworthy and worthy of honor and glory, He takes all of that and He gives it to Jesus. How do we know that? Because in John chapter 16, Jesus said this, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own. Listen, this is the Holy Spirit He's talking about. He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. Here it is. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now let me help you understand this. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. Do you know what Jesus does with that glory? He gives it to the Father. You know what the Father does with that glory when he gets it from Jesus? He gives it back to Jesus. This is an amazing thing going on. And it's, it's for the glory of Jesus. Let's, let's push on a little bit. Because God instructs us to do everything for his glory, according to 1 Corinthians um, 10.31. Now, if you've spent any amount of time hanging around with Christian kind of people, if you go into a Christian bookstore, if you see Christian anything anywhere, you're going to find it on coffee mugs, you're going to find it on t-shirts, 
You're going to find it on all kinds of stuff, this little verse. And it says, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Now, that's the interesting part about this text is how Paul uses it with such normal things in life. He doesn't say, in an ethical dilemma, do what is right for the glory of God. He says, if you have to, he's not saying that you've got to to decide between doing this or doing this, do it for the glory of God. That's not what he's saying. That's not the test he's laying down. What he's saying is, when you're eating a sandwich and drinking a Coke, do it for the glory of God. And if you do it on the simplest things of life, then you do it on the more um, complicated issues of our life as well. God tells us to serve in a way that will glorify him in 1 Peter. Jesus is coming again for the glory of God in 2 Thessalonians. Jesus' ultimate aim for us is to see and enjoy his glory. God's plan is to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory, and that's found from Habakkuk 2.14. Habakkuk is a uh, prophet. We call his his, um, writings, we call it a minor prophet. And the difference between a minor prophet and a major prophet is simply the size of the book that was written. A minor one is short. Habakkuk wrote a short little book, and here's what he said. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, if you've been confused why people, we talk about our international workers that go around the world to take the gospel of Jesus to other places, and if you've ever wondered why people would give their lives to go and do it, this is why they're doing it. It's because when God says, I shall, that means that he will. God will not fail. He cannot fail. And so if we're to go and herald the good news to the parts of the world where there is no visible glory of God, It's because we have the promise that by our death or by our proclamation of His Word, His glory will be established. Everything that happens will contribute to the glory of God. Romans 11, 36. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. That's a little bit hard for us. And if you take some of the tragedies that we've had to face, if you take some of the events of your own life, how could that possibly be glorifying to God? St. Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo, explained it like this. He said that if you put your face up against the stained glass window, all you'll be able to see is the jagged edges of broken glass. The farther away from the window you go, got, the more you would see that it was spectacular. But up close, you don't even have a shot at seeing what it is. So how do all things contribute to the glory of God? Well, let me be really frank, straight, and honest with you. I have no clue. I don't know. And that's the crazy thing about walking in faith with Christ, because there are just some things we have to to take By faith, we just have to believe that this is what God is going to do. This is how God is going to act. And and I don't know how it all works out. And so let me give you a little reality if you're a skeptic of our faith. And you might be thinking, I can't do that. Well, then you can't do that. But that doesn't change it from being true. It's still true. And so I would just say this because I love you. If that's kind of the place where you're at and you can't, I just can't believe that because there's got to be evidence. Well, I'm just going to say this. I do love you, but I'm going to call you a bit of a hypocrite because you don't feel that about other areas of life. Science, for instance, or philosophy, for instance, there are theories out there, and you'll believe them immediately, but when it comes to the things of God, you go like, well, i got to have the evidence. Get over yourself. Here we go, the last one in this barrage of um, Scripture. In the New Jerusalem, the glory of God replaces the sun. What? uh, Revelations 21, 23. And the city 
has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives light, and its lamp is the Lamb. This is the new heaven and the new earth. This is the new Jerusalem. This is when all the saints are gathered together for the grand uh, feast of the Lamb, where we're, we're eating the best meal that's ever been prepared we're drinking the best wine that's ever been made because Jesus just turned it from water into wine, and it's excellent. And everybody's, this is awesome. And we don't need the sun or the moon because of God's glory. So the point of the Bible is it's not about you. God is about God. God is for God. God when God is working, he is working for God. When he's forgiving you of your sins, that's for the praise of his glorious grace. When he is shepherding you, when he's protecting you, when he's providing for you, he is doing so, so he might be worshipped and enjoyed and praised. In fact, the Westminster Short Catechism says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So you exist to worship, praise, love, and make much of God. That's why you're here. Now that jostles us because that's not where we live. Everything in our culture goes differently than what God says. Everything in our culture. God says it's all about God, and the Bible says it's all about God, but yet our culture says it's all about you. All the advertisement is, hey, you deserve a break today. You. Hey, you deserve this new car. You deserve a bigger house. You deserve a a younger looking face, come and get some Botox or whatever that eye sculpting stuff is that I'm going to do when I'm in Florida. <laughs> but it's, it's the whole philosophy. It's about you, you deserve it, and we're going to make way for you. And, and the, you know what the bad thing about it is? Is the church has gotten sucked into believing that too. We're telling, you know, churches are telling people all the time, hey, we want you to come here. We're going to make all kinds of concessions for you. It's all about you. We want you to, you know, we want you to feel loved. We want you to know that you're okay. You, God loves you just the way you are. And we tell you all these different things. But in the, in the grand scheme of everything, you're not the point. In fact, if you look at it biblically, you're not even in second place. Did you know that? God is the uppermost. He receives all of our praise, honor, and glory. He says, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Just what Jesus says. And then what did he say? Love your neighbor like yourself. So God's first. Your neighbors are second. You come in a distant third. You get the bronze. You get the participation trophy. Woohoo! It's not about you. It's about what God's calling us to do. Now let me tell you why this is really good news. Because um, after God is, you got the praise of his glorious grace, and then he, it's, it's not about my, my begrudging submission, but rather, he is after my joy. So all the commands in Scripture are about God lining you up with how he designed things to be for your greater joy. Now some of you are going to want to meet with me after church, and you're going to want to explain your, how your circumstances trump that. You're going to want to explain that I don't know your spouse. And, and if I knew your spouse, there's no way on earth that I'd make you obey what God's word says about your spouse. Because after all, they're cantankerous, they're mean, they're cranky, they're a little bit crazy, they're hurtful. You know, you could go on and on about it. And the others of you are going to come up to me and go like, well, you don't know my family of origin. And, and then... This is, and, and that this whole thing that you're talking about isn't fair. So I, I want to be loving. I want to press in on you just a little bit on this, okay? Now, if after church you were to come and meet me back here at the coffee bar, we have a, a big screen TV back there. And if I took a movie and teed it up in the video player and had it just ready to play just a short little section of it, and if that movie was called cowboys and aliens and I just showed you like 15 or 20 seconds of the movie and then I shut it off and I would say to you so what's that movie about you'd go well it's a western well are there any aliens in that movie 
Well, no, because it's a, it's a Western movie. Are there any spaceships that would appear in this movie? Again, no, because it's a Western. It's a Western movie. And, and, and so we, we really think that we've got this thing going on because you, you, you don't know the whole story of what's happening there. And, and so, um, let me find out where I'm at here because I just kind of lost my thought. Okay, so, so just think how unbelievably arrogant it is of you to say, I'm here for a second in all of eternity. Now, some of you saw me laying this rope out. This rope, you can't see where it begins or where it ends. So we're going to call it eternity. There's no beginning or end to the rope as far as you know. Okay? And so this is, this is where God has been. I'm telling you, you give a guy a rope, and enough rope, and he'll hang himself with it. And so this whole rope is eternity. And God has always existed. He has never not existed. And this continuum is the rope of eternity. And here's your little spot on eternity. And I'm going to see if I can do this. You know, I'm going to make this little red spot right here on this rope. And this is your life. And, and in the grand scheme of, of this rope of eternity, that's how much you're going to occupy of it. This is your life right here in the grand scheme of eternity on this rope. And so what the arrogance is for us is that we think because of this little blip, we are in eternity, in the, in the whole scope of eternity, that we know better of what's for us than the God who created all this stuff. We think we know what's better for our joy than the one who brought all these weird things and put them together. My ideas about sex, my ideas about money and marriage and kids and jobs and church are far beyond the one who designed all these things. And yet this is where I show up on the whole blip of eternity. I'm nothing. And yet I think that I am everything. And God's just got a little chuckle from us because we're not much of anything. And, and so that's really difficult because I just think that it's, it's hard for us to get our head around these kind of things. Let me just paint one last little picture for you. In about three weeks, we're celebrating the fact that my daughter is going to leave my house forever. We call it a wedding. And it's a good thing. She's going to get married. She's marrying a great guy. Carissa and Brennan are going to get married. And when they're doing their vows, there's going to come a point in those vows when the, the preacher, not, not her dad, but the other guy, is going to say, Carissa, you take Brennan to be your husband. And wouldn't it just be like a little bit weird if she got asked that question and she kind of went like, well, you know what? I guess so. I've got the dress and we've got a bunch of people here and, and things are kind of nice and I've spent the money on the dress and, and, you know, would anybody still be crying in the crowd at that point? I don't think so. Or, or what if Brendan's response is, well, our friends, they came all the way out here from Washington, and, and we know some came from Canada, and, and you know what? Um, I've been looking a lot, and I don't think I can find anybody better than her, and I'm tired of kind of looking for someone better, and so I think that, you know, she'll do just fine, so yeah, let's get married. Everybody from Wyoming right then would pull out their guns. the Canadians would pick up rocks. <laughs> Let me make it a little more clear for you. Because we like to do this. And by the way, if you've never been baptized you know, and you are thinking about getting baptized, talk with me because we love to baptize people. But can you imagine taking somebody who, who, who said, yeah, I want to get baptized, and, and we take them to the horse trough that we put out here in the front with really cold water and ice in it. And they're in the water, and I'm in the water, and I say, do you confess that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? And they go, um, not really. We don't continue on with the baptism. I crawl out of the tank, and you guys hold him under until he meets <laughs> Jesus. 
So what we want to say is that in the wedding, if the response is something wrong, in the baptism, if the response is something wrong, God's commanded us to, to step into things that lead to delight and joy in God. All things are to lead that way. So maybe the question comes, well, what about suffering? Because God's sovereign over suffering, what do you do with the moments that are hard? How is God increasing my joy in allowing dark days to come? I'll tell you how. By being enough in those dark days. Bad news can be the loneliest time in a person's life. Even if you walk through those bad times, hard times with somebody else, they're still lonely. I can tell you this because of the experience I've watched with my son, son-in-law and daughter. They have walked together through this whole thing with their baby daughter. And they've been going through it together, but guess what? It's been the loneliest journey of their lives because even though they're together, they're still doing it alone. And so what do we do with all that stuff? So what God is, is telling us, he, he, he wants to lead us into joy in the suffering by being present and sustaining us through the suffering. And I will tell you right now, if you were to ask Leela and Cody if they've experienced the joy of the Lord through their suffering, they're going to tell you, yes. We have experienced greater joy than we could ever have imagined. They've joined this crazy little group of HLHS babies. There's, there's a lot of parents out there who have the same kind of children that my daughter and son-in-law have. And they're on Facebook with these people. They have this little community. It's this crazy little community. It's not a community you want to join. But once you're in that community... It's the most loving, crazy, little community that they've ever been a part of because everybody in there knows what's going on. Nobody's surprised by anything. Everybody prays for one another. And that's the crazy thing. It's that God is, is taking us through the suffering, but he's not letting us go by ourselves. I'm going to be there with you. I'm going to help you through it. Now, here's another thing I want you to understand, that the love of God towards me as a sinner is not God making much about me, but rather him freeing me up to make much about who he is. So when, he's, when God says to Jesus, I'm going to call Ken Simon to be my son. When I'm, I'm going to call his future wife, Lorinda Duick Simon, to be my daughter. And when he calls us, he's calling us to come out of slavery into freedom so that we can make much of who he is. Because God's not saying, hey, this guy, he's legit. Hey, this gal, she's going to be great PR for me. He's, he's going to, she's going to resent, represent me well. So let's go get this guy and gal because, man, we're going to be lucky to have them. That is not why God calls us into anything. God is freeing you up to make much of him. What God has enabled me to do by saving me over the years, and let me just talk about the 17 years I've been here. I have been able to make much about God probably a lot easier than most of you have because Sunday in and Sunday out, I get up and I make much about who Jesus is. I make much about who God is. I have the ability to do that. And then I lead a small group where I get to do the same thing again, to make much about God. And then I have leadership meetings where I, I bring a devotional out to make much about who God is. And so I've had the opportunity, a lifetime of opportunity, to make God's name renowned and great among us. He wants you to do the same thing in, in the place that he's got you planted. And I think the the most spectacular place where a man is set free to bring the glory of God is when he is suffering at his deepest levels. Because it's in that suffering that they open their mouths and they praise God for every breath that they have. And they make God great. So, let me bring this to a conclusion real quick. 
Here's what has to happen. You have to get over you. You're not the point. And the more you think of, that you are the point, the more you will be enslaved to a thousand vices. If you'll get over you, you'll have a better marriage. Because when it's about you, then your spouse becomes your servant, given to you by God to make everything better for you. They can't do that. You're thinking you're the point is going to breed conflict in relationship with your spouse, breed conflict in relationship with your coworkers, breed conflict in relationship with your children. If you want to be a better parent, it's not about you. How many of you have watched kids play any kind of a sport and then had that, that guy, that parent, who was playing the sport vicariously through their kids and they strip those kids bare verbally and make them the, the point of, of just the worst thing ever. Now, listen, I coached kids and here's, what I, here's the way I wanted my day to end, especially when they were really little, like five and six. And I like being competitive, but when you're coaching a five and six-year-old, if nobody pees their pants, that's a win. <laughs> if the game is over and everybody's dry, then I'm buying the whole team ice cream. Because that's a victory. And so you can watch the others who, who, who just, they just rip people apart. They have to perform for others to see them. When you're the point, you use other people. When you're the point, you will easily be angered and bothered by others. If you're the point, when somebody cuts you off in traffic, they did it on purpose. When you're the point, they just want to make your life miserable. Everybody's out to get you. When you're the point, it's ridiculous that you should have to wait in line at the DMV like everybody else. So, when it's not about you, you're free. When it's not about you, you get to extend grace. When it's not about you, you get to rest. When it's not about you, you get to breathe. When it's not about you, you'll sleep better. When it's not about you, you'll be happier. And I really don't like the word happy because it's kind of a cheap substitute for joy. It's fleeting. But when it's not about you, you'll be happier. The more it is about you, the more you'll be miserable. And as some of you know, exactly what I'm talking about. And here's the invitation that Jesus extends to all of us every day. Come to me. Who? To Jesus. Come to me. Come to me. Come to me. It's about me. Come to me. Because well, guess what? When you come to me, if you're laboring and you're heavy laden because it's about you, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light, because it's all about me and it's not about you. Amen? Father, I thank you that you are for you. I thank you that all you have done, for all that you have done, and all that you are going to do, for the praise of your glorious grace, I thank you that you've set us free from us, that you have set us free to make much of you. So I pray right now that you would free up our hearts and allow us to do that. I pray that the things that we have carried in here today, the fears that we have carried here, the doubts that we've carried here, the anger we have with us, we would be able to put it all down in that reality. And I pray that you would help us to get over us. I pray that where we've walked in pride of things, or we're the point, you would forgive us, break our hearts over it, set us free to make much of you. And we ask this in your great name, Jesus. Amen.